Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can Live. I mean, oh cool. We're live. We're, already, yeah. we're rolling. We better not right. fuck this up. Live on tape. Coming okay. to you live on tape from <sighs> suburban Connecticut and Cincinnati, Ohio. So why is this a thing? Presented by Geritol. I mean, I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Presented by Ritz Crackers. <laughs> you know what's funny? Uh I think it's um don't quote me on this. It's either the ballet or the symphony or something is uh, I think it's actually I think it's the Nutcracker Ballet specifically every year is hosted by Frisch's Big Boy. Nice. Frisch's Big Boy. Yeah, it's a fast food chain that is based out here. I think they're like they started out here. Um, Their logo is like this statue of like a little boy with like an enormous fucking head just holding up a burger. Right. So you go see the ballet and you're at this fancy theater, you're dressed to the nines, you know, you're there to watch the, your annual Christmas show. And they go, and now, happy to present Frisch's Big Boys, <laughs> <laughs> the Nutcracker. <laughs> Ever, like, it's yeah. it it's never... like Hostess presents the Met Opera. It's like... <laughs> right. <laughs> That's America right there. That's capitalism in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> Fucking cracks me up every time. Where the fuck have I heard heard of Big Boy like in movies? I I I've heard, I feel like I've heard that name a thousand times. Is that like a national chain? Because we don't have that in New England. No, we don't. I think they. Well, I don't know how far they reach. Have you had? Oh, oh, you know what? You know what it is? I've had it once. It, it's uh, it's Austin Powers is Big Boy, I believe. What's the one? Yeah, that, yeah, where the the big boy statue goes up into space. Oh, of That's course, yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. The, oh, I know the yeah. the kid. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I've seen this kid. I was like, what the hell is that? And so you've you've been there, Nick? Once, and it's just like a burger place. Yeah, they got yeah burgers and shit like that. Yeah, the Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. That's it. Um, so pretty small. Oh, it's just an Ohio thing. It's just like that area. Yeah. How, were, how are their burgers? Are they any good? Well, Adam, I only went there once, so I think that really should say everything. I don't know. Maybe it's just hard to get to, Nick. I don't know. Maybe that. <laughs> maybe you didn't like the town, but you love the big boy. Their flagship location is about five minutes from my house. They're not hard to get to. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. that's their that's their main their, HQ. Their flagship place is so bad. <laughs> Dude, I got I got to tell you though, man, Midwest fast food, it's like you you've entered a parallel universe when you cross Pennsylvania. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's there's uh, steak and shakes and there's Frisch's Big Boy. What, what else is out there, Nick? Uh, we really like you and I really like steak and shake. Steak and shake, I I uh, endorse the fries. The the skinny crispy fries. Oh, see so you have this like uh 
like the way I am with pizza, like you like to judge your your fast food joints off of their fries well, in the yeah, same way that sure. I, you know, if my pizza place cannot get its pepperoni pizza right, I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. 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 We have um there's Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers. Ooh. That's Ooh. the name of the restaurant chain. I feel like a lot of these are just like things that could have been McDonald's but never quite were. Yeah. Raisin Cane's. Do you guys have oh, Raisin ra- Cane's? Oh, of course. No, we do not. But yeah, Raisin Cane's is another big Midwest one. Yeah. Love Raisin Cane's. They're very good. Raisin Cane is a Brian De Palma movie. <laughs> sure is, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> that's What else is there? I feel like there's not a ton of McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's. Last time I was out there, I They're don't know. out there, but... Yeah, it's not as common. Like, in my small town here, there are two McDonald's. Yeah. What I would say is you'd be surprised at just how common Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers is as McDonald's. <laughs> right. That's really... It's not that there aren't a lot of McDonald's, but there's a lot of other shit. And you're like, what? What yeah. is this world? The fucking Midwest just does fast food better than anybody. It's unbelievable. They grow corn and they do fast food. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. They get it. Yeah, math, not so much, but the other two things, you know? A little bit different, but when I was in England, the fact that Aldi's is just their stop and shop mm. is, like really threw yeah, me off. See, even here, now, we have listeners here that don't even know stop and shop, though. Like, uh, that, that's, oh, even that's true, yeah. Specifically yeah, yeah, yeah. regional. Like, that's maybe two states. Like, New Yorkers aren't even like big stop and shop. People. No, oh, I guess big Y right. yeah. in Plainville? Mm-hmm. We have a big Y. Mm-hmm. Nobody has Big Y. <laughs> no, Big Y is Massachusetts. Yeah, right. It's like the tiniest chain. I grew up thinking it was the only fucking grocery store in the country. <laughs> like right. I had no clue. It's the ultimate New England thing. Is yeah. a Big Y. Mm-hmm. Like it's very yeah. specific. Yeah, a Shoprite. I feel like is kind of a national thing. But even though you got Kroger's, you got Food Lion, and Food, oh my god, Food Lion. That's a big thing in the South. Yeah, I'm a big Kroger's mm-hmm. fan. I enjoy going to. Kroger's. I love Kroger, and they're headquartered in my city, as you know. What's right. the other place? Giant is that one that's down south? I think. Um, sure, that sounds about right. Does it sound right? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're supporting that one. Uh, Ralph's is a big one. Ralph's. I think on the West Coast. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Hell yeah! Yeah, so, hit us up on the Discord with your local grocery store, <laughs> and we can, we can <laughs> tell us your notes. local. <laughs> the shortest drive. What is it? No, give you me know just... John Blood's gonna do it. Right? <laughs> yeah, he uh, will. Well, John Blood is obsessed with grocery shopping, as we know <laughs> from his Discord antics. <laughs> he is a hard grocery shopping um, correspondent. What would you say <laughs> is the primary supermarket used in the Middle East? Um, <laughs> what the fuck kind of question is that? <laughs> Why uh, would any of us have an answer to that question at all, Adam? I, I, I just know, ask it. I, I know I their know. seafood place of choice. Trader Joe's. What, what tra- <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's, it's fish tar. Ah, fish Ooh. tar. Ooh. Thanks. And, Thanks for that, guys. That was pretty good. <laughs> Hold your applause. <laughs> guys, we're talking itch tar today. Finally. Oh, oh my God. At long last. It only took us... What have we been, uh, eight years at this, Nick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's about to be eight years, yeah. Wow. I was 20. I was 20, guys. Oh, to be young. Oh, man. (laughs) To be young and making movies in the Middle East with Elaine May. (laughs) (laughs) Ishtar. (laughs) We've been teasing it long enough. We're finally doing it. The cult classic from 1987, directed by Elaine May, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. Considered roundly as, as one of the if not worst movies ever made, biggest box office fiascos of all time and a a huge behind-the-scenes catastrophe 
that has since been reclaimed in the way that all of these movies are reclaimed 20, 30 years down the line as a cult classic and one of the great comedies of the 80s. Great. Is that really how it's been reclaimed? I think in certain circles, yeah. I I mean, it's impossible. If you go on the internet, you're going to find a specific opinion on any movie ever made, you know. Uh, you're going to find The Godfather is bad. You're going to find The Room is good. Well, it is. Know? Right. It's, <laughs> the Godfather sucks. We know this. <laughs> yeah, horrible Terrible film. Terrible movie. Right. <laughs> uh, so, like, listen, I, this is the first time I watched this movie. I could not divorce myself from that context. Yeah. Obviously, I knew Ishtar <laughs> was synonymous with bad movie. It's just an adjective for bad movie at this point. <laughs> uh, uh, when uh, Kevin Costner made Waterworld, it was referred to as Fishtar. In yeah. uh, the reviews leading up to the movie, there's that uh, famous Far Side comic strip, the video store from hell that only has copies of Ishtar in it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a movie funny. that has been referenced for years, but I also knew that it had its defenders. And so, you know, going into it, I tried to remain as neutral as possible, not to take one side or the other and really evaluate it as though I was seeing it in the movie theater for the first time in 1987. I had expectations going into this, but I didn't know what those expectations were exactly. I just know that this was not what I was expecting. Mm. What were you expecting? More of a mess, mm. which the movie is messy. It's but, a mess, all right, yeah. But it's not a mess in the way I felt like I was watching like uh, Airplane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that's not what I was expecting more like The Room mm. mess. I guess because of all of the hype and talk about how this is like one of the worst films ever. It's not, though. It's not the worst film ever. That's I'm just going to put that out there. It's really not. I'm not going to say it's it's not one of the worst movies ever. I I mean, I fell on the fence of it just being not good personally. If this script came out 20 years later, Will Ferrell would have been in this movie. Hell yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Right. And it would have been a Judd Apatow like, right. Yeah. B- dorm movie. It would have been like Step Brothers. Well, something. because this movie's and, and, and if it came out 10 years later, it would have been uh, Wayne's World 3 trip to the Middle East. Exactly. I mean, right. or whatever, or not even. It's Morocco. I will <laughs> say the, the I, representation of Morocco is crazy. And by the way, it comes in a long tradition. It is basically a Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby. road picture. There is a road to Morocco movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hope and Crosby did a bunch of these movies in the 50s and 60s that were huge hits. And Elaine May's whole pitch on this was, all right, what if we updated it with Beatty and Hoffman and we gave it a sort of Reagan era political bend <laughs> and uh, we make up this country of Ishtar and and kind of do a, a Hope and um, Crosby road movie. One of the things I will say is that while I don't think it's it's as bad as I think the initial critics thought. And while I, I wouldn't say it's one of the worst movies ever made, no, not, I mean, not even close, but um, it does have enough of those like fascinating question marks to make you entertain the idea of it could being one of the worst movies ever made. Um, uh, I, I certainly felt that way about the plotting, and I certainly felt that way about the two leads of the movie, uh, right. <laughs> for better or worse. I think I can nail in like one sentence what is sort of wrong with this movie. It came out. 10 or 20 years too early, but everybody involved had sensibilities from 10 or 20 years before. Whoa. Do you know what okay. I mean? Like this okay. feels like everybody came into this with like a seventies sensibilities, but the movie feels very nineties, early two thousands in <laughs> okay. plot in, in uh setup for all the humor. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I see what you mean. I okay. kind of, I, I do understand what you're saying. Huh. Well, I think 
first and foremost, Hoffman and Beatty are <laughs> not comedic leads traditionally. I mean, both of them have done comedies and have been successful in comedies. Beatty, I think, less so than Hoffman. Hoffman is coming off a of Tootsie a couple years earlier, one of the great comedic performances of all time. And, mm. you know, Beatty had done Heaven Can Wait, which is kind of a comedy, but it's also more of it's more of a dramedy than a comedy, straight comedy. Um, and they're also a little bit on the older side. They had taken a big gap in between their last movies. I think Beatty hadn't made a movie in like six or seven years. The last movie he did was Reds that he won the the Oscar for. Um, so they're they're coming out a little older. They're coming at it with really a dramatic background. And you're right, Nick. It is kind of a minor, ineffectual, comedic romp. Something that, as you said, you're either getting in the 60s or the 2000s. But in the 70s and 80s, they weren't as common. Uh, that being said, sorry, guys. I really like this movie. I think it's actually really good. Oh, really? I, I understand. <laughs> I don't know about that. I do understand why the second and third act doesn't really work for people in the way that the first act does. But I think inside this movie, not a single act works. Okay. Oh, the first half hour of this movie is fucking awesome. (laughs) I would say it was the worst part of the movie. It's so good. Guys, guys, what are we talking about? Yeah, I actually drastically hated it much more. Beatty and Hoffman writing songs in New York as a struggling Simon and Garfunkel act is great shit. It's not that funny. Actually, I could totally understand why Nico loves this. Yeah, I understand why Nico loves it. It's totally up your alley. It's not funny, dude. It's just, it's just, it's just. Poor New Yorker, struggling artist, and it feels very uh, Woody Allen. Oh yeah, faux Woody Allen. It was yeah. Came, no, no wonder you love that. <laughs> it, it came off very trite to me. I, I, and it, it it's a, it's a kind of movie that thinks it's a lot, lot smarter than it is, particularly in the the uh, the it, particularly in the first act. I mean, I don't think any one act is particularly good, but I was really waiting for the movie to get to whatever point it was trying to make and <laughs> i was fascinated when it completely and utterly shifts gears and oh, it's when it full metal jackets and full metal jackets this is from dusk till dawn my guy this is okay. this is not kidding around i mean it's a totally different movie total shift when it goes from like two guys in new york to like fucking ancient prophecy yeah international <laughs> but, oh my god the ancient prophecy with the map the map you gotta get the map for us to save ishtar i what don't know i don't know what, to, the map is the a, worst MacGuffin. Yeah, i just want to like put this out there if you're a writer and you're trying to come up with a MacGuffin, uh, come up with one that matters like somewhat because the map if it wasn't in the story it wouldn't do First off, I don't even think it drove the plot. I don't even think it. it <laughs> I don't even think it did what a MacGuffin's supposed to do, which I, is drive the plot. <laughs> what the hell is a map supposed to do? It's a piece of cloth. That it's not even a map. It's supposed to tell you a prophecy. So why do you need a map? Why do you need a fucking map to tell you what a prophecy? is? You're hinging all of the, this entire the entire plot on a on a supposed prophecy. It's just an archaeological find. It doesn't do anything. I don't know. I, I but by the way, to 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 get back to where we were before, like my 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 issue with this, I'm dumbfounded right now. I know your mouth is hanging open. It's like we watched two different movies. Oh, I, I thought it was just so. <laughs> I awful. really fucking liked this a lot. Oh, it was. It's awful. far from perfect, but I really enjoyed it. It's not. I had a great time. I wasn't. I can't say I I I wasn't entertained. It's but but this is because I'm just like, why did they do this? It's a really fascinating movie in that way. But 
my issue are really the leads here. I really don't yeah. like these leads. And I, if I, I love them both in this movie. I think they're terrible. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like, it's so it, badly cast. <laughs> I think a lot of the movie is like kind of fine-ish for what it is. There's a lot of poor judgment on the plotting, but like whatever. I've seen a lot of movies like this. But where I did start to see the question marks that all of those critics have been talking about when it came out came in the form of Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman yes. acting opposite each other because they don't feel like characters. I'm not convinced they know each other. I'm not convinced they're friends. I don't buy anything that happens between them in even a comedic sense. I, oh, I was just so like, disagree. they were just so cringe inducing and unfunny and I didn't get it at all. I was just like, oh, these guys suck. And, I, and I, I, to be honest, I've never been a fan of Dustin Hoffman's comedy. I don't even like him in Tootsie, to be honest. You don't like Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie? Nope. I don't either. What's happening today? He's what, just, like, what, what podcast did I just stumble into? Yeah, he's, he's the kind of guy that just... <laughs> you t- what? Yeah, he takes himself a little too seriously to pull... Yeah, he's one of the off. great actors of yeah. his generation. Yeah, I think you've earned the right to take yourself a little seriously. Yeah, he's not funny. I'm sorry. Dustin Hoffman <laughs> isn't funny. What are you talking about? No, no, no. I, I, cause I agree with Adam here. Cause this, this felt like a, com- <laughs> hold on. This felt like a comedy movie where both of the characters were playing the, the, the so-called straight man. Well, okay. Normally they're supposed to be like in a comedy duo. You have like the funny one and the straight man, the person who plays it straight and isn't really, they're not the butt, butt of the jokes. They're not cracking the jokes. They're the one getting frustrated. Uh huh. Both of these characters are kind of the the straight man in the same way as when you watch Wayne's World, both of the guys are the funny guy. And that sort of is why Wayne's World doesn't always work. I, I would argue Charles Grodin is the straight man in this, though. He's the best part of the movie. And so I think he does a lot of that heavy lifting in the second and third act and is the character, which is crucial in movies like this, that looks at the absurdity in front of them and comments on it. My only laugh in the movie was Charles Grodin. That was your it. only laugh only in the movie. Laugh. And it came at the very very end of the movie where he was just given that really <laughs> the su- look that he gives it's to just, the, uh, it's the best that was the funniest part it's of the so movie, his his facial expressions in that last scene when he turns over to the general or whatever and like gives him like that smirk of like yeah these guys huh go in places it was great yeah that was i was like there it is but the entire movie when felt- he's on the phone when he's on the, the he's got the three phones in front of him mm. and he's like talking to the secretary of state and then the president that's the best my pleasure my pleasure talk to you soon it's a disaster. The girl wants social reforms in Ishtar, which means we probably have to get rid of the Amir, but that's not the biggest problem. We've got to actually back an album with these guys and promote them worldwide. Hold on one second. Sir? We did not shoot at two Americans in the desert. We did not. Who told you that? Secretary of State? Well, how would he know? Again, it, I think there's moments, but it does this weird thing where it... it it goes from being like a really sort of serious comedy to being so totally absurd. It's just very off-putting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a, tonal shifts. It takes some swings. The the casting is weird. It's it's it takes some swings. Here's what I'll yeah. say about the two leads. I was looking at all these old reviews. Like I was like looking at the original Dead Sea Scrolls to try to understand what critics in 1987 thought about this movie because I really (laughs) didn't understand what the criticisms were. Really? And the gist of it was Beatty is Hollywood's most eligible bachelor at the time. He is a notorious cad. Right. And Hoffman (laughs) is the short Ratso Rizzo Jewy guy. And they are cast completely against type. Both of them are switched. You know, the Bing Crosby role goes to Hoffman in this case, and the Bob Hope role goes to Beatty. And uh, 
a lot of people, I think, specifically had problems with Beatty as the sort of bumbling doofus who's not good with women. And then you just look at him and it's like you have the most perfect jawline in the history of movies. And like this is mid 80s Warren Beatty here. You're not fooling anybody. Oh, man. Here's the difference, though. I mean, I'm watching it. I'm like, you could have flipped these roles. Wouldn't have made any difference to me. Okay, which is the problem. They were the same guy. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's that was exactly my point earlier with them both being the straight man. They could have been interchangeable. I don't think it would have made a difference who was who. Oh, I man. think they're both good. Yeah. I really do. I like, I understand the Beatty thing. I think Beatty, he's not a comedic actor, right? And that was one of the things in the Pauline Kael review. She's like, you know, if Steve Martin did this movie, if Bill Murray did this movie, mm, it would have played as go. a more, you know, Chevy Chase or whatever. It would have been a more obvious comedy. But seeing these two, you know, movie stars at the top of their powers doing this it feels kind of sloppy i guess it doesn't feel yeah i guess it doesn't feel like an intentional comedy yeah it's, see i don't fucking buy that well, though it it's like it, it, that's whatever if like that's the vibe it kind of doesn't though there's there's moments where i'm not sure if i'm supposed to laugh like well i mean sometimes i'm just i'm laughing at just like like i'm you're right in that like i'm trying to figure out like how wrapped up in this bizarro espionage plot I'm, I'm supposed to be and I'm not sure if I'm supposed <laughs> to be laughing like I can there's certain instances where a joke is telegraphed and it just doesn't land for me and then there are other moments that are clearly meant to be a little more somber and and, and played out dramatically and I find it very funny and I'm and, but like I'm but I'm la- again I, I hate to say it but I'm laughing at the movie I'm like wow uh, see I don't think that's the case I was like, like well this that movie is pretty funny throughout well, I was it's like tempting comedy throughout. no there is like I, I was there were instances where it's like I was laughing at just the stupidity of the setup sometimes like the um the passport just the fact that the passport is even given up at all i'm just like what in the fuck is happening right now why does this happen this is the and instantly i'm just like i like god this is so stupid i don't buy this even one little bit see big lebowski comes out 10 years later and all of these complaints about the plot being stupid and there being a lot of suspensions of disbelief necessary are, are washed away by that point, you know, after the 90s. Shakespearean comedies, you can go all the way back to the theater. It's misunderstandings cause comedic moments. People not understanding each other, talking over each other, talking about different things but not realizing it. That's what comedies. This movie is almost a little too convoluted. Yeah. At times with the plot, but I'm actually struggling to understand what's going on. There's so many moving parts, so many different factions. There's like, there's like the Russians and then there's the... Yeah, you know who also doesn't give a shit? The characters. They don't give a fuck. It's like all they care about are their music careers. They're trying to write songs. They're in the middle of the desert about to die of of dehydration. And they're writing a song about the vultures. I agree with you. I'm just saying that I think it was hard to follow the jokes. The movie seems to care about the convoluted. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah. No, it doesn't give a fuck, dude. Well, Spencer, Charles Grodin's whole character is like, I can't believe Spencer, the fate of the Middle East is on the, you know, spends all, on these two people. Spends a whole lot of time detailing it for me to believe that. I don't know, I dude. I don't care. I don't, yeah. Like, I, the, the Coens do that all the time, you know? Well, the, the whole point, The Big Lebowski is about movies, and it's about genre, and it's okay to have, like, a bumbling character by nature stumble through, like, different, like, cinematic ideas. In a plot that makes no sense, though. Yeah, but Fundamentally that, on a plot level let me give you an example though when the two guys are arguing with each other and one's like well you're a cia agent well you're this well you're that like those misunderstandings that they're having oh my god what we're gonna miss our show oh no oh yes oh Oh, yes 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, 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 well. That is it, isn't it? Now we're going to get blackballed at the Shea Casablanca. We're never going to work in Morocco again. They're going to call Marty. Word's going to get out. We will never get another booking. What have you done? What have I done? Yes. You're blaming this on me? Yes, I am. On me? On you. You're a spy. That's how come everybody's trying to kill us. Oh, this is a joke. You think those guys are after us because they think I'm a spy, huh? Those guys are after us because they think that you know where Shira sells map is. Who is Shira sells map? Oh, come on. Don't play soccer games with me. You're not selling water down against some schmuck in Ponda, Texas. This is the hog talking. We're supposed to get them and be laughing at the fact that they don't understand each other. Mm-hmm. But I could not understand where they were even coming from because I didn't even know what was going on in the plot. Yeah, me neither. So Let me extend that, an olive that, branch. That, that I think the conflict that Elaine May gives them in the second act... Yes. Specifically of the girl. Yes. This yes. weird love triangle with the girl that they believe is a che- teenage boy. And also the fact that they are they have been turned against each other by two warring factions. I do think kind of falls flat in the sense that and I that's don't, what we're talking about specifically. The here. stakes of them f- breaking apart. The movie does lead us to believe that it matters and it doesn't end up mattering. So I will I will give you that in the sense that the conflict itself feels a little irrelevant but purely on a tonal level the movie does not really care about what the fuck is happening in this made-up country like it doesn't really give a shit and and the movie is telegraphing that to you the entire time it opens up columbia pictures title card with Beatty and hoffman Mm. stuttering playing the piano trying to write this awful song Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be telling telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, you've got bitter black life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. It's full of abrupt tonal shifts, so I'm not sure I can buy that the mood at the beginning is meant to be carried throughout. Like, those abrupt shifts really take me out of that. I'll tell you what, a better version of this movie to me was Burn After Reading. Very similar movie, yes. Yeah. Yes. And the Grodin character is very similar to the J.K. Simmons character in that. Yeah, that movie is commenting on, on I mean, you need, the, the punchline of that movie is, so what was the point? Well, I guess there wasn't any point to all this ridiculousness. I struggled with that movie too. So. <laughs> That's fair. But the other, but, but dildo chair, Nick. No love for the dildo chair. That movie is sort of consistent in its in its tonal wackiness and doesn't like break the the voice that the Coens have. And also, the it's just so much funnier, and the characters are way like way more likable. I mean, it's like, it happens all the time in in this movie. I'm like, oh, they're gonna get shot. 
and then they don't get shot and i'm upset yeah at least in burn after reading like everybody dies <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, gunshots yeah. matter <laughs> yeah and, the, and this ends in the biggest like wet blanket ever where right. it's like all right well they're firing at us let's go i liked it though see to me i don't want somebody dying in a desert at the end of this stupid movie like i want it to climax with the performance at the at the what is it share casablanca yeah right like that's what that's how i want the movie to end i want this is ultimately to me a movie about friendship and a movie about these two guys I don't that give up everything in pursuit of their passion, even though they're bad at it. They're like, bad at being friends, though. I don't even buy them as as compelling friends. Oh, though. Dude, when That's they're the fucking, problem. When, when they're riffing and Hoffman goes to Beatty because Beatty comes up with a line and Hoffman goes, I'll tell you, when you're on, you're on. And he writes right. It yeah. Like, that's so fucking funny to me. Like, even at the end, when they're shooting at the helicopters. Yeah. Th- this might have been my favorite line in the whole movie. They're shooting at the helicopters. Isn't this amazing? Nothing ever happened to us. I mean, Willow left me. Played a couple of clubs. Nothing to write home about. Right. Now we're going to die in the desert shooting at helicopters. That ain't poverty. That ain't poverty. That ain't that poverty. Not of the high not blues. Folks have not got souls on their shoes. We didn't need a pencil. That's what this movie is. That's the spirit of this movie. This idea that, yeah, they're they're a bunch of nobodies that will never make anything of themselves, but. At least they went for it and at least they tried. It's better than being broke, you know, (laughs) and I really did feel that the entire time when Beatty's talking Hoffman off the ledge when he's about to kill himself. Hey, it takes a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age. Don't you understand that? Yeah, most guys would be ashamed, but you've got the guts to just say the hell with it. You say that you'd rather have nothing than settle for less. Understand? I've never thought of it that way. Yes. Oh, liar. It's kind of like they made uh, Step Brothers in the 80s. That's kind of what this is. Yeah. Comes, comes off of that. Step Brothers sucks, but, you know, comes off that way. <laughs> First, Tootsie is a bad performance, and now Step Brothers sucks. Step Brothers that... is, Step Brothers is much Christ. worse than Tootsie. I like Tootsie. Oh, well, thank but, you for that. <laughs> I like Tootsie. I just, I just don't think Austin, I just don't think Dustin Hoffman's funny in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what to say to that. Sorry. I don't really like Tootsie either. I, I also think Step Brother <laughs> is overrated, but... Not a horrible movie. <laughs> Poor Nico. <laughs> Just getting beaten into the ground on this one. <laughs> want to talk to The Graduate while we're at it? I mean, how, how, how deep do we want to go here? Yeah, I fell asleep during The Graduate. Well, all the a... President's Men a little overrated, too. I mean, yeah, fuck oh that, my God. how many more Hoffman movies can we cover here? Well, Graduate's one of my favorite movies of all time. So yeah. That's okay. I love The Graduate. <sighs> but it's not Dustin Hoffman's performance, right? It is Dustin. Well, he's he's very good in the movie, but... Adam, I'm offended you didn't yes and him right now. Right. Sorry, Jesus dude. Christ, Adam. We're, we're talking about the graduate here, dude. I, I, I take this matter seriously. Yeah, he, he draws a line. <laughs> yeah, I draw graduate. a line of the graduate. Let's get into the backstory here because there is quite a bit of it. I'll try to be brief. So El- Elaine May of Nichols and May fame, speaking of the graduate, uh, Mike Nichols, former comedy partner. Uh, has made three movies at this point. And all of them, although not financially successful, are um, certainly critically acclaimed. Uh, mm. A New Leaf, uh, with, uh, Heartbreak Kid with Charles Grodin, and Mikey and Nicky, which is this like uh, 70s gritty gangster movie. And, uh, you know, she had, I think, taken a couple years off from directing 
because she is like notoriously a fickle on set presence. Like I think on Mikey and Nikki, she shot three times the amount of footage that was shot for Gone with the Wind. Whoa. Like she does that many takes. She's like a Fincher level, Kubrick level, like coverage person. Like she shoots like crazy. So like I think for years she she just sort of stuck to Broadway, you know, and and did rewrites on a lot of Warren Beatty movies. She was credited as a screenwriter on, on Heaven Can Wait. I think she won the Oscar for that. Did a bunch of rewrites on Reds. Also did some rewrites on Adam's favorite movie, Tootsie. And um, <laughs> had sort of gotten this reputation of being this Hollywood fixer. Like this really valuable presence just in the writer's room and on set. Helped steer me in the right direction. Oh, so she got what she deserved with this movie. So here's what happened, <laughs> right? So Beatty's like, I owe this woman everything. Because I just won the Oscar for Reds and it was a huge hit. It lost Best Picture, but it was it was like the movie of 1981. And he's like, you know what? She hasn't worked in a while. I'm going to produce a movie. I'm going to use my clout and get this movie made and give Elaine May as much power, as much creative control as she wants. I'm going to stand up for her at every turn. I'm going to defend her to the studio. I'm going to get whatever budget she wants for this. And I'm just going to I'm going to repay her here. And Dustin Hoffman, I think, felt a similar sort of um, sense of obligation. So Beatty produces this movie. This is just as much ba- Beatty's baby as it is Lane May's oh, yeah. baby. Produces this movie. And, uh, you know, if you know anything about Warren Beatty and the history of 70s and 80s cinema, you know that the guy is uh, kind of a control freak. <laughs> you know, he's one of those guys. It's like, yeah, go ahead. It's all, all you. Your turn, man. And then he he's leaning over her shoulder the whole time being like. Actually, I, I might shoot that sand dune differently. You know, <laughs> he's meddling, but he's meddling without trying to meddle. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he's trying to keep the trains running on time, but he's doing a very bad job of doing that. <laughs> and on the set of this movie, you know, Elaine May, she goes on for days and days about the sand dunes not being at the right level. Oh, man. Uh, you know, th- there was this one story about tracking down a camel that looked blind because they, they, they wanted the camel to have blue eyes, so it, it read as blind. It, it played as blind on the screen. So they tracked down this one blue-eyed camel, but apparently the size of the hump wasn't right and the body structure wasn't right. So they kept looking around for other blue-eyed camels. So turns what you, out... What do you... Jesus fucking Christ, like, if they're that hard to find... Turns set, out they're very hard to settle find. Settle with the one you find. They didn't settle. They kept <laughs> looking around for the perfect blue-eyed camel. But a week goes by, they're like, oh, shit, it's going to be really hard to find this blue-eyed camel. Let's go back to the original guy. And the original guy's like, oh, yeah, sorry, we ate the camel. <laughs> Oh my god <laughs> So they end up with the blue eyed camel So all these like crazy stories going on on set. But Beatty Steadfast we gotta defend Elaine May This is my gift to her right The head of Coca-Cola at the time Coca-Cola had just bought Columbia Pictures What it, Big mistake <laughs> So Everything about that Yeah why did they do that? Uh, I don't know, because capitalism. So the head of Coca-Cola... <laughs> what does that have to do with Coca-Cola? Well, this guy, it. Faye Vincent, who ended up becoming like a the commissioner of baseball for a couple of years and was a notoriously bad commissioner. <laughs> what the fuck? What is this guy's life and career? So he's like, he's, He sounds like a, a 10-year-old boy. It's like, what do you want to do this week? <laughs> <laughs> I want to run soda. <laughs> I want to run baseball. <laughs> So Warren Beatty says to Faye Vincent, he's like, hey, bad news. Uh, Elaine can't direct. She's doing a really bad job of directing this movie. 
So Faye Vincent goes, well, you're the producer. How would you fire her, Warren? And Warren's like, oh, no, I can't fire her. I'm a Democrat. I'm a feminist. I can't be I can't appear to be, you know, <laughs> firing a woman that'd be bad for her reputation. So Faye Vincent goes, well, that's all right. I'll fire her then. He's like, oh, no, you can't do that, because if you do that, me and Dustin, we have to walk, man. We can't stand for that shit. We're going to we're going to quit the picture if you fire her. <laughs> so, but she needs to go. <laughs> so Beatty's like, listen, here's what we'll do. I got the perfect solution. Elaine is going to shoot her version of the scene. Then I'm going to come in and shoot my version of the scene. And then we'll have two versions of the same movie. And then in the editing bay, we'll just choose my scenes every time. And then it'll end up being a Warren Beatty directed movie without my name on mm. it. How'd that do, what did that do to the budget? Well, Faye Vincent's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> We'd be paying for two movies then and only get one. That doesn't sound like such a good idea. So they don't end up doing that. But what they do end up doing in the editing process... They gave Elaine May, Warren Beatty, and Dustin Hoffman each final cut permission. They were all given control of the final cut of the movie in the contracts. So they're all there with three different editing crews editing their own versions of the movie. So Hoffman's in an editing bay, and Elaine May's in an editing bay, and Beatty's in an editing bay. And they're coming up with their own version of each scene, and then they're presenting it to the producer... And they're like, all right, which one do we like best? So this movie is kind of cobbled together. It's the vision of all of these different people. Wow. Because they are all, as we know, notorious perfectionists. Uh-huh. Like, it's not just like Elaine May shooting too much footage on Mikey and Nikki. And Warren Beatty is like at the peak of his powers, fucking every woman in Hollywood, uh, you know, top of the world. And Dustin Hoffman is uh, not sleeping for five days on the set of Marathon Man. You know, it's all of these stories of these egos, these crazy artists clashing in this one disaster in the 80s. Yep. Um... That sounds right to me. But anyway, the movie comes out and all of these stories leak and the media decides, well, this is bound to be a disaster. I think the edit ended up getting pushed back 10 months for the reasons I just described. Mm. It was supposed to come out in Chris- at Christmas time, ended up coming out in May. Uh, and I think, again, before this thing even hit theaters critics and the media had crafted this narrative Mm. that it was a disaster the amount of times us on this podcast have talked about a notoriously bad film and then go well it's actually not that bad and then it turns out there was a media narrative crafted before the film's release yes this is not the first time this this seems to occur i mean waterworld did the same thing right Waterworld was the same way. Bonfire of the Vanities was the same way. Right. Yes. Well, Bonfire of the Vanities was actually that movie does a terrible movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But be- not the worst movie ever made. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, bad for reasons separate and apart from the stuff reported in the in the media. That's Well, that's what I think kind of about this movie, frankly. Although it's not as bad as, I think, the, what the narrative was crafting. I agree. I certainly agree with that. But I do also think that that story makes for a better movie. The, the making of Ishtar is hilarious. Like, that's funny to me. I was right. like, oh, that's hilarious. They're, they're competing over their, their stupid edits. <laughs> yeah, Ebert said that on Siskel and Ebert. That's that he great. wants to see the documentary version of this movie. Oh, it's, that's Not great even documentary. Stuff. I want to see the narrative version yeah. of the making of this movie. Yeah. I want to see the, um, what's it, the uh, disaster artist of Ishtar. Right. That's a great idea. The disaster Ishtartist. <laughs> <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. That's not Thanks. bad. Yeah. Um, so listen, was it a bad idea to get these three people specifically together? Yeah, I would say yeah. so. I think personally, they're three geniuses in their own right. You know, I, I fucking love Elaine May movies. 
Um, and it's kind of sad. I think the narrative has also been that this ended her career. Like she was never given money to do anything ever again. And I think to a certain extent that's true. In general, though, I think after this movie, she's just like, it's not worth it. I'm just going to mm. do Broadway. I'm going to win Tonys. I'm gonna- yeah, you had already said she had stopped directing for several years before this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think she kind of found it to be more trouble than it was worth. Yeah. The the prospect of directing. Being a filmmaker then that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, And also what we've talked about several times is that like any smart person would not get involved in film. It's a horrible industry to work in. <laughs> right. It is not a financially successful industry. Right. Which is probably why Coca-Cola realized buying Columbia Pictures was a bad idea because they're a very profit-driven company. You have to be a real, (laughs) real crazy person to want to do movies. I mean, I'm one of them. Right. So, yeah, she just, she wanted out. She wanted out of the game and she, she, she did fine afterwards. So I, this whole idea, like I think she ended up winning an Oscar, nominated for an Oscar for Primary Colors. She still, she wrote The Birdcage. She wrote a lot of the great Nichols movies. I love The Birdcage. Yeah. um, So she reunited with Nichols after that and she won a bunch of Tonys and uh, she actually is reportedly working on a movie with Dakota Johnson now. Oh, cool. Apparently she's staging a comeback of sorts. She's 90. Good for her. But uh, yeah, she's she's maybe going to make one more movie with Dakota Johnson. So we'll see. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was just, uh, you know, wrong place, wrong time for all of these people. And just the wrong combination. Bad alchemy on set. I, I, I don't, I really don't think the movie works that well. Just as a comedy, I don't, think it works that well as a as a showcase for these performers i don't think it works very well but i do agree that it was kind of unfair what happened to the movie for yeah. sure when what happened to the people around it mm-hmm. uh, and la may certainly didn't you know it wasn't worth what happened to her i would say so there is that yeah uh what did warren Beatty do when did he do dick tracy was my question dick tracy was like the follow-up really okay dick so tracy that's, was in 1990 okay. i mean again he was working very sparingly okay because the whole thing back then was movie stars had mystique and you'd wait six, seven years and there'd be this anticipation of when's Warren doing another movie. I think about how much more fucking money they could have had. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why idiots. That's how this industry goes too. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I actually, I had you guys or I recommended that you guys watch the Dick Tracy zooms in special. I watched five minutes. You showed me like an alien language. (laughs) You're just like, yeah, watch this. Like what? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a Tim and Andre sketch. This thing, like, it's, sure. it's not even real. It's it doesn't very feel bizarre. Real. Well, it was, what was it? The fucking the the video that it would cut out and their faces would like shake. Stylistic choice, Nick. What the fuck? Beatty still got moves. You're not a fan of Dick Tracy, there, Nick. Yeah, come on, come Nick. On. What's the matter with you? Al Pacino, his best role ever. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. You probably didn't even recognize Pacino under that makeup and the clips they played from the movie. It's crazy. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I think this was like in late January, Turner Classic Movies, they didn't even put out a press release. It was just like on their TV guide. Mm. Like it ever just like something will just appear in the guide and everyone's like, what the hell is this? Can you imagine you walk into a movie theater and there's just like a movie that you'd never heard of just right. with like, yeah, that's yeah. so weird. There was just a listing as inconspicuous as, as it can be just being like, uh, yeah, D- D- Dick Tracy zooms in the new or the new uh, Dick Tracy special. Dick Tracy zooms in, airing Friday at eleven thirty or whatever. And everyone's like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> so Warren Beatty, I did not know this until this year. Warren Beatty did another one of these specials in two thousand ten with Turner Classic Movies, and he had Leonard Maltin, the the film critic, interview him in two thousand ten 
in character as Dick Tracy. And he did the same thing just a month ago, 13 years later, in order to hold on to the Dick Tracy rights. And apparently he's been doing this every 12 or 13 years. He made this movie in 1990 and he insists on being the sole proprietor of the Dick Tracy image and likeness. So he's held on to it with an iron grasp. All these, you know, for 30 years now. He's going to die one day. Soon. Like it's gonna be yeah, maybe not, soon, man. Soon that. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's going to be out of his control. Like <laughs> He's trying to do another Dick Tracy movie, to my understanding. Is that right? That's what I keep hearing, which would be insane. But is the purpose of this, though, that like by withholding the Dick Tracy franchise, he's going to create the Dick Tracy franchise. Like it's a movie that nobody would have wanted to do or cared about if it wasn't for the fact that he won't let them. Yes, correct. What a convoluted way of getting fun. Yeah, but that's fucking awesome. Though. <laughs> that's. I mean, honestly, hell yeah. Yes, less is more. Thank you. No, it's about time someone fucking understands this very simple principle: supply and demand, dude. I would love it if the executive like like Warren, you could have just asked us to make your movie. You didn't have to go through all this rigmarole. No, let's wait on it. Let's let's hold off. But we would have made your movie, Warren. They're gonna make a Dick Tracy movie. The moment that guy dies, a script is gonna be in the hands of like every producer. Taika with TT or whatever, and they're gonna rope it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know? And that, that that's the thing. It's like at least I mean obviously this this special quote unquote. <laughs> It's not really anything. It's just a bizarre piece of performance art. But I mean, yeah, give me this. Give me a weird old guy clawing on to this old franchise with his last dying breath. Mm -hmm. You can bet your ass that when Harrison Ford dies, they're going to do another Indiana Jones without him. Of course they are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even that. Like, I, I hate the fact that Spielberg isn't directing the new one. Like, I like Mangold fine as a, and I understand Crystal Skull sucked, but. I don't know. Spielberg's still at the peak of his powers. He's still doing great oh, shit. Well, a- a- after the last couple movies, oh my god, I, especially West Side Story with the vibrancy in that yeah. movie. Yeah, let him direct another Indiana Jones film. Why, exactly. why the hell not? Um, well, but it doesn't benefit him to do this. We've talked about this recently with um, was it uh, Jurassic Park movies as well? It doesn't benefit him to like direct those because he can just get someone else to do it. And if they suck, it's not his fault. And if they're great, he gets the credit and he gets all the money anyways. Right, that's true. Why the fuck would he direct an Indiana Jones movie? Because it felt like Indiana Jones was the one franchise he held on to this whole time. You know, Jaws, he kind of passed the baton on. Jurassic Park, he only made two of them. He just wants to make War Horse, you know? He just wants to make... He doesn't want to... He wants to make the BFG. He doesn't want to make fucking Indiana Jones. I don't think he wants to make the BFG. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not convinced he wanted to make that movie. You won't um, let yourself believe that he wants to wanted to make BFG. I never saw BFG though. I saw it in theaters, Adam. Whoa, wow! By myself, God bless. As an adult, yikes! I've actually been going back watching some Spielies from the early two thousands, just because that's the period that I think I've kind of dismissed. Because when we were growing up, like I, I we all turned what thirteen in two thousand eight, so that's when Crystal Skull came out. So in the sweet spot, when we were like starting to develop our movie taste, Spielberg was not exactly the most prolific director, right? We still loved him growing up. We loved him, but we loved the older movies. Yeah. We didn't really identify with the movies currently coming out. Man, were there any that I identify when they came out? I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm sure you saw Munich many years after, right? Way, way, yeah, way I after. Mean, that came out in 2005. Yeah. I'm sure I must be missing something, but The Fablemans is the first, like, Spielberg movie I've seen like when it came out that I liked 
The post? <laughs> that was just the most forgettable thing I've ever seen. It's whatever. It's fine. <laughs> right. Is like the Fablemans I feel like is really like the first Spielberg movie I've been like, oh wow. In a long time. <laughs> I, I I did see Minority Report when it came out, but really? I really but I remember not getting it. It was a little Yeah, I remember when it was in theaters. It was I was too young. Yeah, it's it's a that's a heady movie in a lot of ways, but also um War of the Worlds. Right. But I remember liking that as a kid because right. you know it's aliens blowing stuff up. Yeah. And that was that. But you know, you know me, I'm I'm a, I'm I always love uh, Indiana Jones, so um I wasn't as, you know, I, I and you see, seeing in a new Indiana Jones film as a young kid, I wasn't as bothered by Crystal Skull and even in my later rewatches I still don't mind that movie, so. Yeah, I point being like there are people six or seven years older than us that i think be, because the dreamworks period spielberg from like 99 to 05 mm-hmm. is super prolific yeah he made like eight movies in that stretch mm-hmm. he did munich he did ai uh minority report war of the worlds the terminal he made all these movies and that was always the period that i kind of shrugged off and i don't approach it with any sense of nostalgia now mm-hmm. when i watch them i just think like oh this was you know minor spielberg blockbuster shit Saving Private Ryan's DreamWorks. It was. Yeah, that was what, 98? 98, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so, right. But anyway, I've been going back watching those movies again. I watched AI again, Minority Report, War oh, of the Worlds. Really? I watched all of them. Uh, goodness gracious. The guy can make a fucking movie. I don't mind that period at all. <laughs> yeah, they're good. The guy's really good at making movies. Yeah, but what happened the past like 15 years? I think he became like, um, you know, interested in dad cinema, in dad history cinema. Yeah, I agree with that. And Bridge of Spies rules, dude. Bridge of Spies is the best. Yeah. It's one of the best movies ever made. Nick, have you seen Bridge of Spies? No, of course not. Uh, like, Nick. do yourself a fucking favor, dude. <laughs> you ain't dude, a- you're wearing plaid and you have a fucking dad bod and a beard. Like, it, it's, it's your Bridge of Spies era, Nick. all right? You ain't seen a bridge until you've seen one with spies on it, dude. That's right. <laughs> Damn straight at him. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. I love that shirt. Look at that shirt. Yeah, that I'm wearing plaid, us. but you know what I'm wearing under the plaid? <laughs> I'm wearing yeah. a fucking RoboCop t-shirt. Nick spread apart his button-down Superman style and revealed <laughs> a RoboCop graphic tee. <laughs> that is so dope. Uh, yeah. yeah, Adam would appreciate that. I fucking love RoboCop. <laughs> we need to maybe one of these days, though do a Spielberg ranking and we, and we need to figure out because I have grossly underrated that period of Spielberg's career. I, there's a few of those that I have in my A tier. I, I have trouble ranking them, but like tiering them, I can do pretty easily. Yes. And yeah, those have at least two or three that are A tier films for me. I had this narrative in my yeah. head of, you know, seventies and eighties was peak and then nineties was kind of spotty, but it had like two masterpieces in it. Yeah. And then the 2000s were kind of minor. He was doing like these studio jobs um, that that didn't really hold up. And then it was all history shit. And I think all I, that narrative is just incorrect. I think all of the periods have something interesting. Yes, they do. Absolutely. You know? I mean, um, I have I have Catch Me If You Can, Munich and Minority Report in the A tier. I love those movies. War of the Worlds is really fucking good. Underrated as fuck. That's a yeah. really good movie. Mm-hmm. The agree. sequence where the aliens invade and are just obliterating everyone in the town square. It's, it's like 9-11. It's and Cruz is, and Cruise is great in the movie yeah, too. Cruz plays like a dick. Yeah. That movie's sick. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. I think people make fun of the alien design at the end. That might be like the one thing. That is a good... That's that's one of his more underrated films. It, I mean, it's, it's knocking at the top 10 for me. 
Whoa. After watching it, yeah. And also AI, I was so unfair to AI when I was a kid. I don't love, AI is, AI is fine. It's kind of a mess, yeah, but, but like it, it's a mess in a way that I now appreciate. Whereas mm-hmm. when I was a punk kid, I was just like, oh, that ending is not what Kubrick would have done. And now Nika's like, <laughs> it is what Kubrick would do. <laughs> <laughs> or are you saying that maybe Kubrick's a fucking idiot? With, you know, <laughs> the fuck does that guy know? <laughs> anyway, the Dick Tracy special. Wait, so we're wait, wait, so we're going from this tangent back to another it's tangent. Been a real Russian dolls <laughs> podcast. I'm very today. confused. So uh, Beatty, to maintain the rights, he calls Ben Makowitz and Leonard Maltin from Turner Classic Movies, and they do like this Zoom interview. But midway through the Zoom call, like they bring in Warren Beatty as himself. So <laughs> you have two Warren Beattys talking to each other over a Zoom call and mending fences, essentially. Because apparently there was some sort of falling out. Is um, that the story? Yeah, that's kind of the arc of the special, right? I had no idea that Ben Mankiewicz is like the great nephew of, right, of, of, of Herman Mankiewicz. Of Herman Mankiewicz, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, ben Mankiewicz on TCM, kind of my dream job. Mine too. My dad says that to me every time he watches TCM. How is this shit any different than when I'm always talking about how Maria Menounos has fucking made it? You guys... <laughs> <laughs> fucking push me aside. This is the same shit. It's the same fucking thing. Maria Menounos is doing press for 80 for Brady. <laughs> All right. And Ben Mankiewicz is and like. He's doing the Dick Tracy special. He's talking about Ben Hur, you know? Like, well, I no, guess. No, he's doing enough. the Dick Tracy special. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's a true. Fucking joke. Touche, Nick. Touche. Still my dream job, though. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of slinking around that set, just talking about, you know, old David Lean movies. These are just fucking Useless people who are just fucking in the right place. I'm Ben Mikowitz. I'd love that job. Just do that for 50 years. Just age gracefully. Go more gray every year. That's literally all he does. Talking about film. It's yeah. the best. Yeah, how could you not want to do that? How could you not? Yeah. But the baby thing's fascinating that because he's like, you're going to pry these Dick Tracy trademarks out of my dying fucking hands. Um... And like the special, he's like doing live commentary, but it doesn't seem scripted, Nick, right? He's kind of just like, I wouldn't do that shot this way. Why'd you go with pink roads? Why aren't they red roads? It's nonsensical. It's It's nonsensical. It's just like a rambling old man doing commentary on first the old Dick Tracy special. And then secondly, the Dick Tracy movie that he claims Warren Beatty fucked up. But he's like doing commentary while criticizing the movie, but not really criticizing the movie. It's like the least self-deprecating self-deprecation you've ever seen. Shouldn't Dick Tracy be played by like someone who wasn't Warren Beatty in order for him to say Warren Beatty fucked up Dick Tracy? No, Nick, that's uh, Adam. Wow. Wow. Freudian slip if I've ever heard one. I get it. No, Adam, that's not the joke here. No, but the weird thing is there is no jokes in this special. It's not funny. It doesn't make any sense. It's just nonsense. I think what we're coming down to is that Warren Beatty is just not that good with comedy. That's what that's what he's not is. funny. He's just not he that sucks. funny. He's just, <laughs> he just sucked. How dare you guys? Yeah, he kind of sucked. It. Yeah. Um, I like Warren Beatty, just not in not in that special, not in Ishtar. <laughs> Let's talk about the plot of Ishtar, Nick. Oh, good lord! <laughs> I don't know if I can. These two men at um, a turning point in their life where they've decided to throw everything away and try and become music writers. And they're not very good. Um, 
they get an agent who basically says, uh, well, I can get you guys a gig in Morocco. It pays shit and you got to pay your own way to fly out there. And they go, cool, we'll take it. They go out there and they get involved in, I don't know, like th- a giant spider web of international espionage mm-hmm. and terrorism and overthrowing a government. And um, I, I'm I'm still confused about the, the nation of Ishtar. Well, fake place, but fake place. But I think it's just like neighbors Morocco. Yeah, but I don't think I can call myself an expert on Morocco. But I definitely <laughs> don't think its neighboring country is, I don't know, Pakistan or whatever. Like, they made it like it was the Middle East. It's just generic. <laughs> Wait, is Morocco not in the Middle East? Morocco is in, like, Northwest Africa. That was my question. Is it in Africa? Let's get to the bottom mm. of this here. Hang on. It is like west of Egypt. Okay. Well, that's the Middle East, kind of. Not really. Oh, actually, no, it's not at all. It's no? not at all. No, Morocco it's very is far. like by it's, Spain. Morocco is, Morocco is closer to Italy than it is to the Middle East. Like, Oh. So, so that's why I'm very confused about their representation of like... Because... Okay, between you have Morocco, Egypt, Middle East, like, and there's probably a couple of other nations even in there. Uh-huh. So, like, this does not look like Morocco. This does not look like Egypt. <laughs> like, I don't know what this place is supposed to be. Wow, is there desert in Morocco? I mean, I, I'm sure there is. I'm sure. Well, they filmed it on location, so there must be, there must yeah. be desert. No, I'm sure there's deserts there, but it's more the culture of the people, right? And what they're trying to represent feels very. Uh, offensive for one thing but wildly off just not accurate <laughs> when you put it in that context the the gun trading scene takes on a whole different meaning of the gun trading scene might be the only one that's kind of xenophobic it, it's the only one that's sort of insensitive for the most part i don't think the movie actually ages that poorly i wouldn't nah, this, this no. might go back Maybe. to the reagan era politics that they're trying to comment on and they were just trying to like force a square peg in a round hole kind of thing mm. Here. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Um, but like you know, when it's it's you know you've done something wrong when we're talking about a fictional country, and I can still tell you that you got the facts wrong. <laughs> that's a good point. Right? Does Dustin Hoffman look like a Middle Eastern man to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. That seems a little tough. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, that 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 might be the toughest scene in the movie. I did want to comment, Nick. Uh, I'm going to kick Nico out of the podcast for just a second. Um, um, <laughs> Is this a fucking Dune thing again? There, so there's of course a, it's Dune. There's a oh great, my goodness it's a great, gracious! It's a great. We're reference. talking about Ishtar. Shh, quiet. There's a there's a great uh, uh, Dune reference. I was like, ooh, these. In order to make the coup work, they have to kick these people out into the desert and make it look like it was kind of an accident. We're not going to harm right. them. We're just going right. to put them out in the desert and let the desert take care of everything so it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, paul and jessica uh coincidence i think not elaine may so i don't think so either <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> it's dim. i also really thought that um when the giant worm attacked in ishtar i thought that was definitely referencing dune and then they wrote it and killed uh, <laughs> yeah. uh charles groden with it that was a great scene and when she when uh when he used his magic to blow up rocks, mm, yeah. very Lynchian, I- iconic Dune Lynch imagery. Can we talk about the flashback real quick? Because like, I do believe <laughs> oh, that this, this is the is best the, part of the movie. No, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I fucking love this. So let's talk about the songs at first. You talking about when they flashed back 
to scenes they had already shown. Okay, this was terrible. Is that what you're talking about? Are you referencing the the flashback to to previously shown scenes? Because horrid filmmaking. So I just I just they, <laughs> so unbelievable. They, I, I I really I'm in awe today. I really can't do it today. <laughs> Over ish. Like, okay, to a certain extent, like I'm I'm happy that you two are here just because it was such a mystery to me watching this why people didn't like it. So at uh, least there is someone. There's some clarity. There's a little bit of clarity here. At least I'm getting the devil's advocate here. I, I still love the movie, but that, but anyway. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So the opening scene of this movie, and then throughout, they show you just fragments of these songs that they're writing. And the big one is, is called Dangerous Business. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. Shit, man. When you're on, you're on. They believe that Dangerous Business is as good, if not better, than Bridge Over Troubled Water. Yeah, uh, right. and, and they just want to be, you know, on the storefront at Tower Records. And Nico York. just relates to these characters too much. That's yeah. what this is. That's what's going on. So they're stumbling. And I actually think the stuttering at the beginning of this movie is fucking awesome acting, dude. That's like Dustin Hoffman acting at, 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 at its peak right there of, of them just trying to figure out the words. I almost wonder if there wasn't like a script for that part. And they're just like, try to write a song. Right. Mm. Telling the truth is telling the telling the truth is an herb. Telling the truth is a bad herb. Telling the truth is I love what he goes. Telling the truth is a dangerous business. Why? He keeps going why? <laughs> <laughs> That's his songwriting process. Why? <laughs> what were you saying? Uh, I don't know. This movie's so good. Oh God! So all of these songs I wanted to mention are written by Paul Williams. Really? Paul Williams wrote entire versions. That's part of the reason how this budget ballooned to fifty-one million dollars is they hire him to write all of these songs and calibrate them to this movie, make them good enough that it doesn't annoy the audience, but bad enough where we understand that they're awful songs. Software. I'm looking for software. I gotta have software for my machine. She said, Come look, there's a wardrobe of love in my eyes. Take your time, look around, and see if there's something your size. I was thinking about, like, you know, when we talked about, um, um, that thing you do and how it's like this perfectly calibrated hit that you and I just get. We understand how that could be a hit in that world. Um, and then I thought about the, the reverse side of things where it's like uh, with the King of Comedy, where it's like you get how he might be able to do a stand-up show and they're, yeah, they're jokes, but they ain't got the mustard on them. They suck mm-hmm. and they convincingly suck. And, and his delivery sucks too. Exactly. Yeah. But this one felt in that weird, again, I was so confused i was like is this supposed to be so absurdly bad that it's funny or is this like a genuine like 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 portrait of songwriters just working it out because i couldn't get i just no, I, it's, it's supposed to be bad i was like i it, but it's presented in that like like very like authentic like new york style that you see in the 70s they're at a nightclub with bongos they're at an open mic it's just the two of them with bongos and warren Beatty's doing this weird dance i'm not so, rolling his hands well that stuff's more i think you are supposed to authentically think they're like 
real people. They think they're good, but they clearly suck. That's the point. Yeah. They're supposed to suck. There, there's like a yeah. there, there's a cognitive dissonance I have with like the the way the characters are are on the page and the the movie that's being shot. It's very weird to me. It's like I I I, I certainly see see what they're doing on reflection, but in the moment emotionally I'm like what's going on here even. Yeah, it sort of teeters the line between being like a comedy drama and being like a spoof of itself. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's good. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, you think it kind of it's on the other side of that line, like it's more like overtly absurd. Well, like like I said at the beginning, it felt like sometimes I was watching Airplane right? <laughs> at times, yeah. like sometimes the humor sort of teeters that line. You're like, wait a minute. Hmm. I think just really tonally, this movie is kind of off putting. It's just uncomfortable. I think that's really the problem. It's just that it's not a comfortable watch because the movie's not consistent. Mm hmm. It's not consistent even in its inconsistency was the thing. Right, it's, right. It's very misshapen and weird. I completely agree. That was one of my notes. I it's was just like, uncomfortable to watch because. Yeah, yeah but that's Nichols and May, though. Like, like, that's her whole style. They changed comedy doing that. Like, th th that's fucking Elaine May. That's what she does. She does uncomfortable cringe comedy. You know, though, they, they say, like, if you're good at editing a movie, nobody should notice the edits. Mm. Right. This is sort of like that, but for tone i guess i agree with that it's just you notice it and it's distracting and it's it's not comfortable <laughs> yeah I, I i kind of agree too this is the the cringe in this movie by like i see what you're i think i see what you're doing but i'm not in it and i don't get the joke really or i'm not emotionally responding to it the way you clearly want me to yeah i i, I well, that was one of my notes i was like i don't know what this movie was trying to aim for for a tone <laughs> but it's not here how about the song at the lounge when he's when the the old couple for their fifty second wedding anniversary comes back, and he sings a song like "I left you some love in the will" or something like that. I promised I'd love you forever. A promise I'm planning to keep. You'll be well taken care of after I've gone off to the land of the big sleep. I'm leaving some love in my will yes i'm leaving some love in my will here, what, I, what i'll what i'll say um as opposed to adam here is that i i thought this movie did have a lot of funny moments i genuinely thought it was pretty funny it was just very confusing <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair that's fair yeah um i especially i, I like the scene where like the the american agent is on the ground and he's like, I recognize a couple of Russian agents over there. Oh, that's the best. The KGB is here. I recognize two agents. One's dressed as Texans. No. One's dressed as Arabs. One's dressed as Texans or Arab agents. CIA is this. Yeah, was not you to the book. I also recognize two guys from Turkish intelligence. In the Hawaiian shirts. No. The Bermuda shirts. The ones in the Hawaiian shirts are tourists. I, I actually didn't, I didn't, not to say I was laughing per se, but I thought like visually it was amusing because it's like these guys are just supposed to be people in the market and they're wearing like little suit and tie and the fucking sunglasses. It's like you're clearly narcs, but right. you're just standing there like trying to look inconspicuous. All of that shit is funny. Like when Warren Beatty is walking down the street and there are agents just on the side of the building and then there are multiple cars follow for some reason they have like five cars following Beatty and they start crashing into each other every time he starts turning around no there's there's some funny moments in there it's just 
confusing to watch. It's awkwardly telegraphed, I guess is what I would say about it. It's almost like it was uh, directed by a blind camel. Yeah, there, there we go. What's wrong with the camel? Is it blind? Yeah, actually. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I, I will, I will say, I so kept bumping into shit. The weird thing is, you could take this base script, and you give this script to, um, like Will Ferrell and somebody, or you give this script to Adam Sandler and Rob Schneider in the '90s, or you give this script to, um. Like, um, what's his name? Seth Rogen and James Franco in like the early mid 2000s or whatever. This movie could work. Pass, pass, pass. I'm just saying. Red light, red light, red light from Nico. Too enthusiastic thumbs down. Absolutely not. The movie no. would be just another one of those forgettable little comedies that they made. But exactly right. Well, but it's better than it being this like commercial failure. And <laughs> apparently career ruiner and apparently worst movie of all time to the point that the title of the movie and the name of the fictitious country is synonymous with dog shit. I mean, it's fair. Here's what I'll say. <laughs> I'm just, I'm defending the movie for you, Nico. I'm saying that this movie, there's a, there's a universe where this movie works. Yeah. Any, anytime a movie carries with this reputation of it being a disaster, mm. it's never like, Avengers Endgame. You know what I mean? You never hear any stories about Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Hemsworth not getting along. You never hear like, oh, you know, on the set of uh, a free guy, there was a lot of friction between Taika Waititi and Ryan Reynolds. You know, it's always interesting movies. It is almost always a movie that even if it's good or bad, whether it's Bonfire of the Vanities or Apocalypse Now, at least like we're talking about it. You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, guys. That That is the one lesson that we've learned time and time again on this podcast. And yes, you don't have to necessarily make your movies in this kind of environment. Clint Eastwood and Woody Allen have done a great job over the years just getting done by lunch, staying under budget. Everybody's happy. They work with them over and over again. Elaine May, not that type of filmmaker. Warren Beatty, not that type of filmmaker. And Dustin Hoffman, certainly not that kind of actor. But I don't know. Great art comes from this. You I'm know? not saying stop it. Yeah. I, I already said at the beginning, it's a fascinating movie to look at and just like see kind of what they were thinking. Uh, so like, and yeah, that's, that's why I can say, honestly, I was not bored watching this movie. It did fl- kind of fly by. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's it was fair. for the reasons that the movie was intending, but you know, it's I, I I'm never gonna forget it. You know, it, it, <laughs> I can say I'm in on the Ishtar conversation now, and it's nice to be able to say that I I don't I don't hate the movie at all. Uh, and yet, while I don't think it's very good, um, yeah, I, I I do come out on the side that I don't think its reputation is earned even in the the slightest. I wonder if this movie could be saved with a recut. Well, it did actually get a recut. the The only version that's available now, and I'm sure it's the version that we all watched, is the director's cut from this, 2010, I think. Oh, so this isn't even the original version. No, it, but it's like two minutes shorter. Yeah, though. I it's haven't like, actually seen an account of what's different. I think it's only like it may, might be two minutes longer, two minutes shorter. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's not significant. But there's just been a couple tweaks made. So I'm talking. I mean, if we have three cuts of this movie that potentially existed at one point. Oh right. Oh those. Right, that's what I'm saying. Between Dustin Hoffman, Beatty, and uh, May, like between those three versions, I wonder if there's an actual good version of this movie. Because like, 
when we talked about Waterworld, I I still defend that. I think the Ulysses cut is phenomenal. Yeah, I I don't think that that there's a version like it's not like a Blade Runner situation. Mm. Like I I don't think Elaine May has a cut of the movie that's like actually they took it away from me because I don't I don't think the movie really got taken away from her. The whole thing was Beatty t- stuck by her and let her make whatever movie she wanted to make. So well, I think I, all three of them eventually settled on this is the version we have. Right. And and when you hear them talk about it now, like they like Hoffman it talks about that movie pretty positively. Um, Beatty's like, yeah, we fought a lot. Me and Elaine on set. Like, I think there were times where they weren't talking and mm. they gave each other the cold shoulder. And I don't think they worked together again after that. Um, <laughs> but I think they all are like, yeah, it was kind of a misunderstood movie that got. Um, swept up in this really oppressive media narrative. Yeah, that was that 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 was not fair. I I, I completely agree. Yeah, with that. definitely undeserved. Yeah. yeah, that was very undeserved. Yeah, uh, the movie ends up grossing only twenty seven point five million at the box office. Now in twenty twenty two, you're like, oh wow, look, a studio comedy made twenty million dollars, uh, but <laughs> it was a massive failure. Fifty one million dollar budget. Um, when you think of the money that like you know Will Smith comedies made in the nineties. Right, like that's horrible. Let me actually let me amend that. It it only made fourteen point four million at the box office. Ooh. Still, if you heard a studio comedy made that today, you'd be like, yeah, okay, there's something here. <laughs> Let's commission the the TV spinoff and three sequels. Um, but yeah, it did not make back its fifty one million dollar budget. Um, a lot of people blame that on the fact that they shot overseas on location rather than just building a soundstage. I think Siskel and Ebert actually said that in their review. Why don't you just shoot this on a soundstage? I think the effect is actually pretty cool and it, it does lend a, a bit of authenticity to the, the last act of this movie. Um, it feels distinctly like they are in different places between the New York scenes and the Morocco scenes. Certainly does. Yeah, that's certainly also something does. brought up a lot. Like Hoffman, when he first got his hands on the script, I think was of the opinion that the movie just should have been a New York movie. He's like the first act. Let's just make this the whole thing because Elaine May at that point in time had only shot in New York. I think that would have been a better movie. It, it, perhaps it would have been too. Yeah, it was definitely really jarring. It's not just the fact that it changes locations, but it changes genres entirely, and then it goes <laughs> it back to the genre at the end. It's such a weird film structurally. <laughs> um, I I don't know, but, but th- then again, that is sort of the charm of the movie: the fact that it had the audacity to do that at all. Right, you know, that's way more distinct than just you know another struggling New Yorkers movie. So. Yeah. yeah, I'm always caught between this. Like, it would have been a better movie, but it also would have just been another one of those movies. Yep. And sometimes yep. I don't know what's better. Right. We don't. We ne- we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the story there was like Coca-Cola had all these frozen assets in Morocco. <laughs> like they had all this money that they couldn't get out of Morocco. So they're like, let's just do the movie there. We have this money to spend. We might as well just fucking do it there. So that's why they... <laughs> It's a lot of like weird stories like that. Again, like why is Coca-Cola getting involved in the movie business? Well, like we have assets frozen in Morocco that we can't take to the US, so let's just spend them there. Yeah, let's that's, just make Ishtar. That's Morocco. psychotic. You, when you have the chance, Nico, you got to read uh, the Blood, Sweat, and Chrome book because yes, the Mad Max book. They basically shot Fury Road illegally. Right. <laughs> basically, what <laughs> they more or less just said: "Fuck you, studio. We're we're making this movie whether you like it or not." <laughs> yeah, no, I I love that shit. I love when they shoot on location. That's kind of what happened. No, that's the thing. It bothered me that the Siskel and Ebert review. It's like you guys are movie critics. You should be championing this on location style. Like you should be championing these big budget things. 
I, I think part of their review, they, they had uh, put it at the end of their worst of 1987 episode. Yeah, it's not that bad. And, they ta- and they're like, bad, uh, yeah, if only they shot this on a soundstage and it looked more fake, maybe we would have understood that it was a comedy. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like you want the movie to look more tacky? Like, you guys are film critics. What are I, you talking about? I kind of get what they mean, though. Yeah. I kind of get it. I get what they mean, too, honestly. I hate to... Yeah. I understand why, fundamentally, I don't like laugh tracks. But at the same time, like, this movie would have done better with a laugh track because it needs... I need the fucking cues to understand what's going on. <laughs> in in this instance, yeah, like... Do you like know what this, I mean? I think that's what's missing here. Yeah, make it just a little more outrageous. It's it's kind of a it's kind of like Blazing Saddles, I guess. Oh, we're on such different we're on such different pages here. Yeah, I'm sorry, dude. I would love to see Mel Mel Brooks's version of this movie. Hell yeah. Oh uh, sure. Yeah, give me that um, movie. Yeah. Any other any other standout scenes? Uh, well, we did. We already went over the the um, uh, gun trading scene, I guess. So that that was the most like, what the hell are they doing? Kind of scene, I suppose. The most overt example. I mean, we didn't really go into full detail of what happened in that scene because I think we all want to beat around the bush here. But like, yeah, Dustin Hoffman pretends to be an Arab, doesn't speak any Arabic, obviously, and so he just begins yelling in wildly offensive. Was I supposed to say again? Do it. All the while, Warren Beatty is like wrapped up in a burqa, uh, kind of egging him on like, ah, yeah, yeah. Because he has to convince them that he can actually speak Arabic so they don't shoot him to death. Exactly. So he kind (laughs) of. I do think it's hilarious, this concept of like, we need a translator to do our illegal gun trades. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like we didn't, we don't have a guy. Like we don't. (laughs) It is kind of funny that these things are happening in the middle of the desert, too. That's true. Well, yeah, just the idea that you would hire a translator that you haven't worked with before to meet you somewhere in the middle of the desert. Uh, yeah, I like how he drives up and he's like, oh, you're the translator, right? Like, <laughs> do, do you think I walked out into the middle of the desert by myself and I'm waiting to meet up with you? <laughs> like, I'm just standing here at the meetup spot. <laughs> oh, yeah, the meetup spot. It's the dune next to the yellow sand over by the the the, the flat sand plateau everything in the desert is confounding to me how how did uh how did the girl find them in the desert too i was very confused by that i don't know she's a terrorist she she's an international spy i don't know she has ways but she drives out there in a truck she's just like i know the spot it's a desert yeah i love this guy yeah the guy who drives out there he's like i've been looking for you all day i'm like how did you find him (laughs) what Going oh, in I've circles. looked everywhere. So then I decided to come to this spot in the desert. I overturned all this sand. I couldn't find you anywhere. Like, <laughs> what? It's just, it's very dumb. But that's a different movie to me. I'm like, what? Again, like, there's a thousand different types of comedies in this movie, which is so funny to me. But hey, she might be a suspected terrorist, but it doesn't mean she sleeps around. All right. <laughs> she <laughs> wanted. She sent them out in, to the desert to to die too. No, that wasn't her. She gives them the beads, and the beads don't do anything. No, but that's that's Grodin that does that. With the beads? No, Grodin is the one that sends them out there. Yeah, Doesn't she send them out there? No. She gives them the beads, though. Yeah. She gave them the beads. Uh-huh. She says, saying, these beads, you drop them, and they'll glow, and you can find your way back, which is just total horse shit. It's yeah. not true. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Well, 
isn't her cell her like rebel cell or whatever they want them to die but she she feels bad about it she's like the only one both warring factions would like them gone yes because they're a liability to both of them in some way shape or form that's true but she feels bad and the implication there is that she's kind of fallen in love with both of them yeah and even when they sing the song to her at the end at the morocco or or the uh, casablanca i think they're wonderful yeah but the beats don't work. They're supposed to glow in the dark. Right. Yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> I don't know. Was, but that also, there was like a major sandstorm. So they all got buried by the sand. There's, like, there's just a gazillion holes in this script. I don't there's know. Also, what the four, four billion factions that I have to know who they are and what they care about. Half of my notes are like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I just right. repeated myself. What is going on? I, I do love the line, though, where the guy is like, sir, this mission is no longer... Co- covert <laughs> it's like you don't say <laughs> but that's this movie i love that of like it's gotten so out of control and the characters are acknowledging like wow there's a lot of a plot b plot c plot this fucking thing like how do we wrap this mm-hmm. shit up mm-hmm. i love that about it like it's very knowing in that way and not and to me not an annoying way you know like Groden in this i i do think brings like a a real stability to the proceedings. Yep. And I feel like I'm in good hands. And even the two of them, like they're constantly commenting on how ridiculous it is that they're in the middle of the desert. They're singers in the middle of the desert shooting a bazooka at a helicopter. You know, that's why I love the it ain't poverty line. You know, mm. it's like they're laughing to themselves. Mm. That was another thing Siskel and Ebert said in their review. They, the, uh, the scene where they're crawling in the desert, writing the song, they start chuckling and Ebert goes, yeah, well, that's the behavior of two actors that think that they're being funny. And it's like, that's not what's happening at all. These are two characters acknowledging the absurdity of their environment. You know, that's good filmmaking. That's nuanced human filmmaking to me. I just don't understand it, man. I'm reading a different language than you guys. I'm kind of on Roger Ebert's this isn't side. Much, yeah, it's not much different than the movie we watched last week. Yeah. The yeah. two guys get dropped off in the jungle and... Yeah. Their shitty comedy act and yeah, it's just not a. That's a good point too. It's just I just don't think it's a good act. They're not funny. They're not funny at all in this movie. They're not funny and they're not good singers. And they're not real <laughs> characters. It's like I I might agree with you, Nico. If I really bought them, if I really bought them as the people they're supposed to be, I contend that a Will Ferrell product would have been a better movie. I don't care. God, well, okay, I was I okay. I don't agree I don't with care. that. I don't, I don't agree care. with that. I I'll, I'll, I'm on Nico's side. Would have been for more this coherent. One. But who is the replacement is my question. If you were are to recast this, what, what's a better option? I, I don't mean, know. It's just a fundamentally different movie if you put Chevy Chase and Steve Martin in this. Yes. It's just it's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Is it better? I don't know. It's a different movie. It's a different kind of movie. Your expectations become yeah. radically different when you start watching it. Yep. You you know, I think those guys come into it with a very specific persona uh-huh. and a specific brand. And I think Elaine May was cognizant in the casting process to avoid those pitfalls. That was the entire point of making Beatty the um, the the sort of doofus and making Dustin Hoffman the cad, right? Mm-hmm. I like, thought the point of that was because Beatty was uh, the producer of the movie. Well, maybe so, that too. But like, like, I don't buy that she like cast Warren Beatty for his. Well, he could. She could have <laughs> easily given him the other role, and she didn't do that. Like. I, it, it's very it's very purposeful to me the idea that they're trying to shed their personas. They're trying to check their reputations out the door. I think it's hard to do when you have Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty in your movies, 
But like to me, you put comedic actors in this. It's just so fucking generic and paint by numbers. Mm-hmm. And this to me is anything but that. So yeah. that that's why I loved it. And I also think they're good actors. I like hanging out with them. It's certainly one of the most interesting movies we've talked about. Yeah, I can I, give it that. I'm not I'm not particularly contentious here I, as, it, as it sounds. I, I'm, I'm just kind of like, oh, OK, that was weird, but <laughs> fine. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this thing ends up getting nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Director at the Razzies. Elaine May wins Worst Director. Oh. Years later, though, directors like Quentin Tarantino, Joe Swanberg, Edgar Wright, and even Martin Scorsese have praised this movie. Scorsese citing it as one of his favorite films of all time. Damn. Ishtar. Uh, Elaine May contends. I love this quote. If all the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. <laughs> That's a good point. Cause like, I think so much of this was media narrative, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because people just didn't see it. It's, I mean, a movie that fails at the box office is not a um, good or bad movie. It's a movie people didn't see. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think uh, even the guy that does Farside, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the cartoonist, but he issued an apology being like, I did that cartoon strip without seeing Ishtar. And then years later, I watched it on a plane and it was like, yeah, I was entertained by it. Yeah. It's actually not fair. You know, there's a million other movies I could have put in the place of that movie. Yeah. It's not a movie that deserves to be a punching bag for anything. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I think the counselor deserves. <laughs> the counselor's <laughs> unbelievable. It's a horrible oh film. Yeah. It's a terrible film. I, I you know. I contend. Anybody ask me what's the worst movie I've ever seen? I still contend. Counselor, worst movie. I've had it. I've had people ask me that question fairly recently, Nick, and I have told them it's the counselor. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it really is, hands down. It's just awful. And I always feel bad because I love Ridley Scott so much, but I was like, geez, he's made what I think is one of the worst movies of all time. Period. I think I go The Happening. Wow, of all time, yeah. The Happening is so much more watchable. It is. I would much rather watch The Happening. Yeah. I would I would watch The Happening five times before watching The ha- the Counselor one more time. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. There is good shit in The Happening, though. Maybe that's not fair. The opening of The Happening is pretty good. Yeah. At least it's funny. Even if it's unintentionally funny, at least it's funny. Oh, The Counselor's fucking hilarious, though. It's not, though. It's, it's, it's not. The truth has no temperature, Nick. Come on. <laughs> that script is... It's the worst. <laughs> insane. Pile I'll tell you shit. what, though. I will tell you what, though, uh, uh, Book of Henry's knocking on that door for me. Oh, it's close. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because we've talked about damn near 300 bad movies on this podcast. So we uh, are kind of the guys you ask, right? Mm. We have done Birdemic, too, which you didn't see. But who gives a shit about Birdemic? Yeah. I, I disqualify all the like independent little movies. Like, yeah, yeah. To yeah. me, you have to be a Hollywood production. Birdemic is like purposely bad made by a guy who had no career like neil breen those movies don't count as bad because that's what they are like they're <laughs> the ridley scott failure is like a way bigger swing and miss you know what i mean when pe- when people ask what's the worst movie ever made they're not talking about neil breen's or birdemics right. or anything they're not right. even talking about manos it's right. it's yeah it's like by a you know being in a space that i know and understand as a as movies baby yeah okay that's something you could judge i think you have to have a wide theatrical release to really count mm-hmm. for me uh you, you have to be like a union movie like you have to have like sag actors working on it and like a you know union crew and 
you know, you have to have a craft services department like that. Like it's got to be that. <laughs> you can't kinda... all just be Neil Breen. No, right. <laughs> you can't credit Neil Breen with everything. That's hilarious. <laughs> so it's got to be that kind of production. But, um, but then where does the room fall in? Yeah. See, I don't I don't think you the room. Consider- it's not really in the spirit of the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it needs to be a big swing and miss needs from to. a studio. Yeah. You know, there needs to be a budget behind it. It has to. Has to be a movie. The, my only issue with that is that it can make you hate, like, kind of like whatever studio films that really aren't that bad, but you end up saying, like, I fucking hated Uncharted or something. It was a piece of shit, vile movie. And yeah, it's not that good, but it's not that bad. Like, whatever. When you watch movies through this lens of like low budget movies, you give them a lot more leeway and you focus on what they did well. And big budget movies are the ones that you criticize. You, you find that you come to the conclusion that most movies are just okay. I have found now the more we do this show, and by the way, we should mention we were going to do Cocaine Bear this week, mm-hmm. and we didn't do Cocaine Bear. And I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna. I think we're boycotting the movie. Because <laughs> for the most part, the reviews have been fine. Yeah. And it's that snakes on a plane thing of they tried to make a bad movie. They tried to make a B movie for VHSs in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too mainstream. The fact that you're seeing all the ads for it and stuff, I was expecting this to be a movie that they kind of just... Either like slipped under the radar. Mm. There's not much investigating on our parts with something like Cocaine Bear. Right. So, right. And I, I just don't buy into the fact that you can reverse engineer that shit. Mm-mm. Like, like I think it needs to be organic. Like, I don't think you can make a bad movie on purpose. It has to be an accident. Yeah. Mm. And um, so I think the more that we do this, the more we tend to weight um, ambition and intention mm-hmm. and passion, you know? And, and so I, I like generally the movies that we think of as good for the sake of this podcast are not necessarily like technically good movies, but movies that are interesting to talk about, you know. And so I think like there are different types of bad in that way, too. You know, the counselor is super fucking interesting. Yeah, know? Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> so like that to me is just a more fun time than watching Free Guy. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'd well, rather watch the counselor than Free Guy. You have some of the top people in the prime of their career all failing in unison where it crosses the line for me nico it's like usually i'm I'm kind of on your side where it's but but the second it becomes a miserable experience which is what the counselor is to me yeah that that you're done i don't care how interesting bad your movie is it's a, if it's a miserable experience i want nothing to do with it right. and that's the counselor <laughs> and the happening's not that movie i i ha- happening is a is a fun shitty watch <laughs> i love ishtar I defend it. <laughs> that's fine. Let me yeah, credit. Fine. Most of the research I did for this was from a Vanity Fair article that was um, an excerpt from this Warren Beatty biography by a guy named Peter Biskind called uh, Star, How Warren Beatty Seduced America. <laughs> Real fascinating read. Got a lot of great insights. That's where all those stories came. And there are more stories in there about you know Warren Beatty's womanizing a time that he was on set with Dustin Hoffman and he was in the middle of a conversation and 50 yards behind Warren Beatty was a woman mostly covered, you know, from head to toe in clothing to avoid the sandstorm. And Beatty turned around instinctually and Hoffman in that moment knew like this guy had like a sixth sense. Any woman in his orbit he locked into, even if she was a mile away. (laughs) Like a, like a fucking wolf. And I believe, and I believe <laughs> like an animal. asked him in that moment, he's like, is there any woman on the planet you wouldn't sleep with? 
And he goes, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and the line, I love this line. I love this line. And he goes, why not? And Beatty goes, because you never know. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I can't tell if that's ridiculous or badass or... That's the best fucking story of all time. Or poetic or what? That's the best. (laughs) That's why Beatty's Beatty and I'm me and you're you, you know? There's something profound. Some of us are just born different. That's that's called that's called sex addiction. It's a real <laughs> issue. It's a it's a serious problem. Speaking of womanizing, um, oh uh, boy, where is this going? Uh, I I only recently. I mean, it's the opposite of womanizing, really. But I just I I was uh, um, <laughs> I was watching Falling Down again, which is a wonderful movie. That movie rules. It's so, so politically incorrect, and I understand why it's canceled now. But it's so good. It's a really good movie. It is a movie about a Holy old shit. white man going on a rampage and just shooting people. Basically, yes, basically. But it rules. Michael it, Douglas is awesome in it. Joel Schumacher movie. It, well, this is my uh, my my next point. Yeah, yeah, I my I was watching it with my brother and his fiance, and um. He was like, ooh, Joel Schumacher, that's that guy that claims to have had sex with 20,000 men. I'm like, what? <laughs> 20,000 men? And I started doing the math, and I'm like, okay, wait a second, how old is he? How many people did he have to have sex with every other day? And I just went through all these equations on how that makes sense to me. <laughs> I've, Adam, I have done the exact same thing with Wilt Chamberlain. Yep, yep. Who has also claimed, I think his number is also 20,000. 20, yep. And I've had a fucking chalkboard in front of me. I've assembled like rooms of, uh, you know, the brightest thinkers that I know. (laughs) Take that with a grain of salt. Just with calculators and an abacus and just, you know, we're we're crunching the numbers. And and I'm picturing like a montage sequence of the numbers flying by the screen (laughs) in the DiGregorio household. I'm like a beautiful mind. (laughs) Goodwill hunting. Oh, my God. That's funny. No, we've done this because you got to think how many times in a night you got to figure some of these women at the same time. You know, it's not all individually. It's not 20,000 sessions. No, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. So and then you're like, okay, yeah. How many? This could mean like threesomes, foursomes and so on and so forth. Um, uh, And I I naturally got to Wilt Chamberlain uh, after going down the rabbit hole of Joel Schumacher. And uh, turns out Wilt Chamberlain has done the same thing. Right. The the way he came to that number was like, oh, Jesus, I have not stopped fucking. Uh, <laughs> so, it was every night. Every single he's night. He's dropping 60 points at the garden. <laughs> so it's, it's like <laughs> so 365 days in a year I've been alive on this, this many days. And yeah, he, and he, yeah, he did the same thing. <laughs> Talk about a guy that just dominated the world. You know, it just every facet of life, Wilt Chamberlain just was the absolute champion. <laughs> Jesus. Like, I don't think that, I don't think as many porn stars have had sex with oh, that many people. Yeah. It's, um. No, because they, they charge procession, dude. It's like. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Supply and demand. I mean. All right. That's it. Uh, Ishtar. Ishtar. This what? is a fun combo. I enjoyed this quite a bit. <laughs> Me too. Me too. This was fun. All right. Next week. What are we doing, Nick? Uh, well, we're starting a uh, documentary month. Are we actually starting documentary? We're month? actually starting documentary month. Um, Feels like we're not starting documentary month, though. Why not? Are we in on it? We're in. I'm in on it. Yeah, we just don't know what the hell we're gonna talk uh, about. Feels like we're a little gun shy. No, we, we got we're... four. We got four uh, docs already lined up. Oh, okay. We can yeah. change them out, but we got four. Okay. Oh, we do. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I vote. We do the raft from 2018. 
The Raft. I don't know what The Raft is, but sure. There's a lot of... Um, the movie, my understanding, I've never seen it, but my understanding is that it, it explains everything that you'll need to know, but I think there is potentially a lot of outside homework you could do. Uh, it's an interesting piece about this one narcissistic scientist, basically. Okay. We love a narcissist on this show. Yeah. His attempt at a human experiment that did not go the way he wanted. <laughs> All did right. He put walrus tusks on a man. Maybe. He probably would have had better results. Did he sew a bunch of women together? Asked him out. He uh, took a bunch of people and he trapped them on a raft for a long time together to see what would happen. Nico, are you implying that Human Centipede is a documentary? It's 100% medically accurate. That's true. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. It's It's on the box. It's a fucking poster, dude. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm I'm sorry. Come on. I'm sorry. It says so on the (laughs) cover. I've, you know, it's crazy. When those movies came out, I thought, I will never watch those. Not for me. (laughs) I've come around on them. The Human Centipede? The Human Centipede movies? Yeah. I haven't seen anything past the the first movie. Apparently, that second movie's fucked up. I haven't seen the second two either. Yeah. Part one's kind of kind of good movies, guys. First one's kind of good. I mean, really gross, but kind of good movies. (laughs) Uh, So is Ishtar. All right. That's it. Love ya. We will see you next week for Documentary Month. Until then, so long. Bye-bye.